It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm thrilled that you're tuning in. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This has been the subject that uh, I had been building up to for some time, letting you know was coming, the subject of tongues. And in this study, we've now been into it for a few weeks, but it, it, don't, don't be dismayed. Uh, what you'll hear today, I believe, will encourage you as well. Uh, each one of our broadcasts, we try to make uh, you know really something that you can use in and of itself, even though it's within a greater series. So we've been talking about this subject of tongues now for several weeks. If you've missed those prior broadcasts, please go to calvaryfountain.com. There is a drop-down button there of audio-video. You click on that. You can listen to the prior broadcasts as well as watch these sermons from Sunday. We're in the book of Matthew on Sundays right now. So again, if you're looking for a church and you just want to go deeper into God's Word, please uh, learn more about Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church uh, right there at calvaryfountain.com. And uh, so here we are on the subject of tongues. And last week uh, I had to just really cut it off because we're just getting into some serious tough talk about this subject of tongues. And let me just back up just for a moment. And what I was highlighting at the end of last week's broadcast was the utility in the gift of tongues. We went through a whole series about how the gospel message was spreading across the known world, a process that even took a thousand years of the various translations, even from Greek to Latin to English, and how this translation of spreading from the universal language of Greek, and even today English has become the language of commerce known around the world today, that these translations were critical in disseminating the gospel message, and this gift of tongues was critical in fulfillment of the Great Commission. This Great Commission that was before us there, Matthew chapter 28, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so this gift of tongues is quite critical in this process. Let me just take you back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. We see the men speaking languages that was not their native tongue. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. They're praising God. They're worshiping Him, but the Holy Spirit was the source of this pure worship. It was it was just coming out of them. The language that left their lips was heard and understood by those who needed to hear it. Okay, so they're in a posture of worship. They heard worship. All those who were listening are hearing worship, and it astonished them so much that Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was able to speak to them boldly, and the listeners were convicted they repented, and thousands were saved. You see, the, the worship that was coming out of them by way of the Holy Spirit fostered evangelism. The two go hand in hand. We read in Mark 16, 17, that we will speak in new tongues, and this is a result of being filled by the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. Then in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, we see Peter presenting the gospel message to the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the listeners, for they heard them speak with tongues, and they were magnifying God. Then in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, we see Paul giving the gospel message to those in Ephesus. And then as he's baptizing them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. 
go back to Acts chapter 8 for a moment. In Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40, we read of Philip. Now, Philip, this is uh, Philip the deacon who later become the evangelist. And we read of Philip being sent by the Holy Spirit into the desert near Gaza. And there he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch of great authority. And not only is Philip instructed by the Holy Spirit to go to him, he is given power to outrun the chariot, and then he dialogues with this Ethiopian man without a language barrier. Now, we're never told that they spoke the same language, but we make that assumption because the Ethiopian is actually attempting to read Isaiah, though he confesses that he cannot understand it unless someone guides him. Now, after Philip gives him the gospel message, the Ethiopian man accepts what he's heard, he's baptized, and then Philip is taken instantly, the word harpasso comes up here, by the Lord from Gaza to Aztos, which is Ashdod, and that's approximately 18 to 34 miles away, and it's depending on the location where he was there in Gaza, but he's instantly transported after this. I mean, a lot of awesome things going on there. The Holy Spirit instructs him to go give the gospel message. There's not a language barrier. Uh, It leads to evangelism, which ultimately leads to a man being saved. And then ultimately we see the Holy Spirit just whisk him away some 18 to 34 miles away. Now, all of this is just an awesome reminder, and it speaks to the power of the Holy Spirit working through a man to bring glory to God the Father. That's the intent here, as we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. So what is the gift of tongues? I believe it is a gift of worship that fosters evangelism. You won't, I, I, well, let me back up here. You, what you'll find is that evangelism occurs even while others are speaking in tongues of worship. So you don't seem to find that, that one is exclusive of the other. They, they seem to go hand in hand. Evangelism, is, evangelism as a whole is not contingent on the gift of tongues. You go to Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 3.15, even 2 Corinthians 5.20. But where there is tongues occurring in Scripture, you will find evangelism. Why? Because tongues is the result of the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit speaking. Let's go to Mark 13, 9 to 11. Here's what we read. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour... Speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I think of Paul and Silas as they're singing and praising God in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. They're in the stocks. They've been arrested. It's around midnight, and what are they doing? They're worshiping God. And then there's an earthquake that's followed by evangelism. The jailer and his family are saved. So do you see that? This happens in Acts chapter 4 as well. Acts 4.31, let's read it. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So prayer and worship are the the catalyst, if you will, and then we have evangelism, bold speaking, just like when the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. So it's time for the tough talk in this. And now for the tough questions that really come into play here is what we hear in many religious circles today, the tongues of worship that the Bible speaks of. When we talk about 
the subject of tongues today, is that the same thing that the Bible is describing? Now, this is where it may get tough for some of us. I I mean, my heart is filled with love, not judgment here. I I don't want to add to further division in the churches. What I want you to understand is that my my tone here is laced with grace. And if you disagree with me, uh, please extend grace in return, okay? I believe that many who pray with various noises are trying to express a state of their experience, a state of their heart. However, it's not a language in its truest form. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks, about the construct of language, the beautiful gift of language, the alphabet, and uh, the ability to put together words and, and adjectives and, and descriptors of, of even the depth of Amagio Dei, of the image of God himself. There's, a, there's this thing of language that is very unique to an intelligent species to ultimately communicate deep thoughts and most importantly, deep thoughts about God and the worship of Almighty God. So there is a language of the Holy Spirit and a language of men. But for a language to be a language, it must have a construct with a translation key. So people can earnestly express themselves before God, but it may not be the language of the Spirit, as it is certainly not a language by form or structure, although a communication with God may still be occurring. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. So these individual expressions are not the spiritual language of tongues as outlined in the Scripture. The translation for tongues, after all, is language. So as I mentioned earlier, there is a great divide over this topic, which is completely counter to the work of Jesus Christ through his church. Thus, we have this chasm that's forming in the church over these issues that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. It was a divisive thing then, it's a divisive thing today. So in fact, it appears there there are the, the Bible scholars and all these academics on one end of the discussion, and those seeking experiential worship on the other. And I always ask, why can't we have both? Why does it have to be such a chasm? Why does it have to be such a divisive issue that creates these denominational differences? And I believe it's because we aren't examining it correctly, right, in the the proper biblical context of it. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Billy Graham, Ravi Zacharias, even E.M. Bounds, who was one of the foremost teachers on prayer, none of these men spoke tongues the way that we hear them in charismatic circles today. These ecstatic utterances, they didn't speak that way. Justin Martyr, Origen, Christensen, uh, Augustine, they considered tongues something that happened only in the earliest days of the church. Even John MacArthur does not support speaking in tongues because of his view of cessationism, uh, which I've already explained that I'm not a cessationist, uh, but but I do uh, value his opinion, certainly. Uh, uh, Francis Chan will openly state that he doesn't speak in tongues, but doesn't refute the teaching of Scripture that is stated as a gift of this spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. But like me, he'd rather speak five intelligible words than speak in tongues. But he's, but he's prayed for that gift. I know we, many do. Uh, how about the late R.C. Sproul? He acknowledged the spiritual gifts, but believed that we have misused the text to create division rather than edification of the church due to misunderstandings of application. To elevate some is no more spiritual than others. That's really what it becomes a litmus test of spirituality. So the men I listed there, by their own admission, they do not or did not speak in tongues as we would imagine it today. So so there, there were and are men of rigorous academic study of the Word of God as I mentioned, all of those men just previously listed there, 
So does that mean that the studious Bereans of Acts chapter 17 were less spiritual by the standards of some who consider tongues as a symbol of an indwelling Holy Spirit? Or is it possible that the current paradigm of speaking in tongues is a method by which we have allowed even aspects of pagan practices to infiltrate the church to appear more spiritual? when this is only becoming a hindrance to biblical study and application. I mean, in fact, if you look at this, it creates a dependency on the sensational rather than a firm understanding of biblical truth. We're looking for an experience rather than a firm foundation of knowledge that's put to practice through wisdom. So, so why do people go to music concerts? They, they could hear that same music on their devices or radio. They like the experience. So in the same way, many modern churches have acclimated to creating an experience that drives a returning audience. Now, I know that I, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to the subject here of tongues, and many of us are, uh, but I, I've, listen, I have listened to some of the prayers of pagan circles. When you travel the world and you do ministry overseas, when you have been a part of mission work, you become very sensitive to some of the things you hear in churches today. And when you hear some of the prayers to Shiva or Vishnu, when you hear some of the Native American prayers, and maybe you've spent some time in the West Bank or near the Tower of Mosques where prayers are sung unto Allah, all of them can become very soothing meditations and quiet the emotions. And this appears and sounds spiritual when in fact it's idolatry. Okay, it can, it can be very deceiving. The more mission work that we've done in the Middle East, it's amazing how you become desensitized to even those prayers coming out through those towers. Some of them very soothing. And then you realize that you're allowing your mind to be altered by a state of soothing sensationalism that creates an experiential form of, of being. It's a dangerous territory to be in. We need only to reread Matthew 7, 2 Timothy 3, 5, 2, or even 2 Timothy 4, 3 to understand that we can appear spiritual without being spiritual at all. So such was the case in the 1730s and 40s during the famous revivals in America and, and England, and they were known as the First Great Awakening. So the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, for example, in 1703 to 1758, or George Whitfield up through 1770, and many others— resulted in a profound outpouring of the Spirit with thousands converted on both sides of the Atlantic. And while many were clearly under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Edwards and others admitted that there were distortions and problems during those revivals. And it included some radical emotional and physical manifestations similar to uncontrollable laughter. They called it Holy Ghost laughter. The fainting spells, intense weeping and wailing, prophecies ranging from predictions of deliverance from headaches and cancer to forecasts of God's wrath on select American cities. And some church leaders criticized the revivals for such excesses and, and even calling them extraordinary enthusiasms. So although there were good things happening at the revivals, the enemy is always quick to infiltrate and distort. The devil masquerades as an angel of light, after all, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and therefore we must test the spirits as we read in 1 John 4, 1. Now, again, we go back to the root of this. Glossolalia, from the Greek root word of glossa, is this phenomenon sometimes referred to as ecstatic utterances. And glossolalia is sometimes confused with xenoglossia, which is the biblical gift of tongues. Now, xenoglossia is the ability to speak fluently a language the speaker has never learned. 
That There's no distinctive given for what the language of the Spirit is in Romans chapter 8, only that noises are involved that are understood only by God, and the text never says that we should speak that language since it's between the Spirit and God the Father. So for those who try to emulate this language, especially in a corporate worship setting, how do they know what the language of the Spirit is if there's no recording of it? The Bible never tells us. So unfortunately, if you were to listen to some corporate services, many of the noises currently used in many religious circles is actually very similar to various pagan rituals, dangerous territory. So in fact, the current version of religious tongues as we would think of them today weren't even introduced into the mainstream churches until individuals like, I don't know, Charles Fox Parham, uh, even William Joseph Seymour, number of folks, they launched this movement at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, around 1900 to 1905, so just over 100 years ago. So out of 2,000 years of church history, we have something new that appears spiritual, but has in fact created division amongst the brethren. It's now become a a litmus test of spirituality. If if you don't do this, then somehow you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not what Scripture tells us at all. So pagan religions all over the world are obsessed with tongues. That includes the the shamans in the Sudan, the, the Shango cult of the west coast of Africa, the Zor cult of Ethiopia, voodoo cult of Haiti, the aborigines of South America and Australia. I mean, what they would do is murmuring or speaking in gibberish, and that's construed to be some deep mythical insight by holy men in some sort of ancient religious practice. Now, in 1972, William Samarin, he was this linguist from the University of Toronto, he published a thorough assessment of Pentecostal glossolalia that became a classical work on its linguistic characteristics. Now, in summary, I won't read you all of his writings, but in summary, here's what he states, that people who were examined from different groups all claimed to speak in tongues and did not use the same sounds or constructs within their expressions. So, in fact, people within the same groups didn't share a similar construct. Since God is the author of all primary languages on the earth, it seems odd that such a holy language would have no similarities in linguistics and lack any structure. So, this is not debated by those who speak in ecstatic utterances, since they use 1 Corinthians 14.2 to defend their position that noises they call language are mysteries of the Spirit and and that no one understands them. Now, this provides an open door, in my humble opinion, for an activity in a corporate setting that has no accountability. This is why Paul stresses that expressions of tongues should only be reserved for a personal engagement with God, if done at all, unless there's a translator of 1 Corinthians 14. 26 to 28, which we'll get to that. So Paul is telling us that it's better to desire gifts that build up the church because speaking a language that no one knows will not edify the church, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 9 to 12. So we can examine every spiritual gift and appreciate their value to the greater work. But with tongues, we often resort to baffling sounds and justify them, suggesting that it's perfectly okay when all the other gifts are necessary to advance the kingdom of God. So it's, it's easier to come to the conclusion that the gift has ceased rather than, than acknowledge that we've just failed to understand that the gift of tongues was a tool to advance God's work on the earth. 
So the current phenomenon of, of tongues, however, hasn't uni- unified the church. I believe, rather unfortunately, it's divided it. It's created confusion and has no accountability, no construct, or translation key. So in my humble opinion, it is the essence of disorder, of toyu, the very thing that God expelled at creation. He brought order where there was no order. And I believe this is why Christ spoke about how to pray to God in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. Let's be reminded. I'll read that to you here. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive your men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Christ gave specific instructions for communicating with God. There is no recording of Christ ever speaking in ecstatic utterances. In fact, of the 355 occurrences of prayer in the Bible, we don't have ecstatic utterances demonstrated. The construct of the Bible, of God's very nature, is perfect on every level. Even science, history, and nature support the Bible. There's no accountability for even the non-believers to see God and have no excuse. Okay, so there is accountability, I should say, rather. There is accountability. So they, they are totally accountable of seeing God's creation and acknowledging that there is a God of heaven, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. So with every aspect of Scripture, we see mathematical perfection, physics, agriculture, health, finances. It's all there in, in, in perfect instruction. So we have a God of absolute tactical precision who created the languages of the earth in Genesis chapter 11, including the languages of music and math and even the languages of angels, but we have random babbling in the church? We've got an issue here. This goes against the entire structure and design of the Bible itself, but we accept it as spiritual and unknowable, even though Paul says he doesn't want us to be ignorant in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. So speaking a spiritual language in your prayer closet is between you and God. If you are in a church setting, then we should be mindful of others using discernment if we are truly filled with the Holy Spirit to engage in worship and prayer in a way that edifies the church rather than creating a distraction that brings attention to the person rather than God, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 16 to 19. You see, I think it was Chuck Smith who reminded us, uh, he would say that, you know, there were those who wanted to speak tongues during service, and, and so he'd give this instruction. He would say, you know, we believe that the Holy Spirit won't interrupt himself, because sometimes folks would create a distraction in the midst of a teaching service in which people were learning the depth of God's holy word. If that's of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not going to create distraction against the very spoken word of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to see a, a counteractive action of the Holy Spirit against itself, right? So clarity Precise communication, order in worship is of the very nature of God. And so we've created all these things to create something spiritual 
to hopefully give us this feeling, this euphoria of spiritualism. And we've got to be very careful that we're not becoming addicted to the sensational, to the experiential, to the sensational, rather than to the truth of God's holy word. This is something we have to cross-examine in our hearts every day because we see a culture that is addicted to such things and not to the truth of God's holy word, not to the commands and directives of the scripture itself. We want to do all these other things except for do exactly as God has told us to do. And and that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. And so I want to thank you at least for just hearing me out on this. We've got so much more to cover. And again, I hope I haven't created offense in you because there's so many traditions that dominate the landscape. We find ourselves getting offended because our traditions have been called into question rather than saying, what does the Bible teach us about these very deep and important matters? And so again, I just want you to be grace-filled toward me as you send your questions, as you continue to listen to this study, as we're going through 1 Corinthians 14 on the subject of tongues. We've got a lot more to cover in this chapter, many other variables to consider here. So I want you to stay with me. Don't tune it out. Don't just check out Uh, keep listening. And again, if you've missed the prior broadcast of Engage in Truth on this subject of tongues, I think this is part four in our study now, please go to calvaryfountain.com. And there you'll find all of the previous archives, uh, all the archives of all the previous shows. And you'll also be able to find all of the studies that we're going through the book of Matthew on Sundays. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sunday at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. We'd love to see you there. We're located on the south end of Colorado Springs. So wherever you're traveling from, we will welcome you. And we'll be excited to go deeper in God's word with you. Thank you again for listening. See you next week. God bless you.